Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. We have so much to get to. We're so glad you guys are with us. Thank you to everybody who's listening live. We love you all, you all our evil army of the night. But also, let's give some love to everyone who listens to us the next day on the John Fugelsang podcast on SiriusXM On Demand or on the SiriusXM app. We love you guys. We appreciate getting your notes. And you guys who listen the next day, you're, you're allowed to call in too. 866-997-GRIT. And Chris Hauselt is our executive producer running this thing from South Carolina. Thea Harper is running this thing from Brooklyn. In the words of George Carlin, let's do a fucking show. <laughs> it's good to have you with us. We talk a lot about gaslighting here on the show. You know, how individuals or politicians or media can try to make you feel like you are the crazy one. Gaslighting is a popular form of psychological manipulation. It's emotional abuse. The gaslighter... It's not as simple as lying. The gaslighter avoids responsibility for whatever toxic stuff they're pulling by lying, by denying, and by making you question your feelings, making you question your memory, making you question facts. Gaslighters are there to make you feel crazy and confused. And they do it. You see it by put, pitting races against each other, pitting neighbors against each other. They want the left and the right to hate each other. That's a form of gaslighting. I don't hate right-wing people. I hate the lies they're fed. I hate the programming they're instilled with, but I'm fighting for right-wing people. I don't want right-wing people to get gunned down because some crazy 18-year-old kid got his hands on an AR-15. I don't want right-wing people's kids to be buried under decades of student loan debt. I don't want right-wing people to have to do a GoFundMe to pay for their surgery. Now, I hate the lies. I hate the policies. But politics today can make you crazy. And we talk about this. White supremacy has gone mainstream with replacement theory. Every day we're seeing atrocious footage of this murderous Russian war on Ukraine with no end in sight. And then right-wing politicians from Rand Paul to Trump to Trump Jr. just openly repeating Putin talking points. We see politicians who call themselves Christian beating up on vulnerable populations, migrants or trans children. COVID is on the rise again. And it's starting to get scary. Inflation is hitting working people so hard. And the right wing's doing nothing to help, just trying to use it to get votes. Democrats control the House and the White House and the Senate, but they can't get incredibly popular, non-controversial reforms passed. 
and there's UFO hearings, and the military's revealing all it knows, and everybody's too stressed to care. Or we're shutting off the real world and immersing ourselves in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. I got I, okay. I know so much about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I could teach a, a community college class at this point, and I haven't even tried to learn anything. Spoiler alert: If you're not following the trial, they're both dicks. That's really all. You, they're both dicks. Now, look, many of us are handling these terrible times with booze and drugs, and I am not here to judge. I am no one to judge. But May is Mental Health Awareness Month, or as I call it, fuck the stigmas. And this month is recognized every year to normalize talking about mental health issues and, more importantly, to share resources to help support your own mental well-being. Be kind to your mind. Because we need you. We need the good people. We need the anti-racist people. We need the sane people with empathy. Mental Health Awareness Month is designed to highlight how important it is to take care of your own wellness. It started back in 1949 by Mental Health America. And every year they they choose a different theme for it. So the theme for 2022 is back to basics. It's focusing on teaching people the fundamentals of mental health now that we are two plus years into a pandemic. And mental health conditions are way more common than you might realize. That's why we have to talk about it. They affect about 21% of the people living in the U.S. If you are struggling with any kind of mental health addition, you have to know effective treatments are available, and there's so many organizations that can give information and support and even intervention when you need it. Millions of us are affected by mental illness every year, and we have to measure how common this is so we can understand its impact on the culture, on, on our economy, and most importantly, to show that nobody's alone. There's so many stigmas surrounding mental illness, and what do I say about this month? Fuck the stigmas. People who are struggling with any kind of mental illness should seek treatment as soon as possible. And if your treatment doesn't work, then try out another one. I always say seeing a therapist is like trying a diet or a religion. You keep going until you find the one that works for you. Because mental health conditions generally don't improve on their own. And they can lead to a lot of other health issues if you don't treat them. So, So if you'll indulge me, again, you're not alone. One in five adults and one in six young people have experienced some form of mental illness every year. Okay, they estimate only 45% of adults and only 51% of children with a mental illness get treatment. Allow me to give you some stats from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. 21% of adults experienced mental illness in 2020. That's that's 52.9 million people. That's a lot of us, folks. You're not alone. 5.6% of adults experienced serious mental illness in 2020, 14.2 million. 16.5% of U.S. youth between 6 and 17 had a mental health disorder in 2016. That's 7.5 million young people. 6.7 of U.S. adults experienced a co-occurring substance use disorder and mental illness in 2020. That's 17 million of us. That's your family, that's your coworkers, that's your neighbors, that's your friends. It's very, here, here are some of the annual prevalences among U.S. adults. 21 million of us deal with major depressive episodes. A one and a half million of us deal with schizophrenia. About 7 million people struggle with bipolar disorder. That's 2.8% of the population. Anxiety disorders, 19%. That's about 48 million Americans. Post-traumatic stress disorder, 3.6%. That's about 9 million of us. 
and half of us don't seek treatment. Obsessive-compulsive order affects about 3 million of us. Borderline personality disorder affects about 3.5 million. 46.2% of adults in the U.S. with mental illness did get treatment in 2020. 64.5% of adults with serious mental illness did get treatment in 2020. Uh, 50.6% of youth, 6 to 17, with a mental health issue, got treatment in 2016. But guys, the average delay between the onset of mental illness symptoms and somebody actually going to get help, it's 11 years. If you are living with depression, it is believed you have a 40% higher risk of developing cardiovascular and metabolic diseases than the general population does. And people with serious mental illness, twice as likely. That does affect our economy. Mental illness affects all of us, even if you don't live with it and no one in your family does. At least 8.4 million people in America provide care to an adult with a mental or emotional health issue. Unemployment is higher among U.S. adults who have mental illness than compared to those who do not, 6.4% to 5.1%. High school students with significant symptoms of depression are more than twice as likely to drop out. Students who age 6 to 17 with a mental, emotional, or behavioral concern are three times more likely to repeat a grade. And caregivers of adults with mental or emotional health issues spend an average of 32 hours a week providing totally unpaid care. Depression and anxiety disorders cost the global economy $1 trillion in lost productivity every year. Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. And so one of the things about this month is it's also okay to talk about suicide. It's the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34 in the country. I'm going to say that again. Suicide's the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34 in the USA. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. And the overall suicide rate in the U.S. has increased by 35% since 1999. 46% of people who die by suicide had a diagnosed mental health condition. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth, four times more likely to attempt suicide. 78% of the people who do die by suicide are male. 78% of people who die by suicide are male. And transgender adults are 12 times more likely to attempt suicide than the general population. Which leads me to Metallica. The band. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Metal Giants. Back in the 80s, they were often called Alcoholica because they partied so hard. You know about this. I mean, if you ever saw that terrific documentary, Some Kind of Monster, you saw James Hetfield talk about many of his issues, and he traced them back to his childhood. Now, James Hetfield, he's that big guy, that very commanding presence in the band. He first entered rehab in 2001 because of his struggles with alcohol and other addictions. And in 2019, he went back into rehab. Years later, the band had to cancel their tour in Australia and New Zealand. And at the time, the other guys in Metallica posted a, a statement on their website saying, as most of you probably know, our brother James has been struggling with addiction on and off for many years. He has now, unfortunately, had to re-enter a treatment program to work on his recovery again. Now, why am I talking about this? Because we have to talk about it. And if you are living with it, or if you know someone who's living with mental illness, I want to play this really quick clip for you. This happened in Brazil last week. Metallica was doing a show, and James Hetfield, between songs, 
decided to tell everybody at the concert about his anxieties about performing live and his struggles as a guy who has been famous for most of his adult life and is adored by millions, his struggles with mental illness. Give a quick listen to this. So I got to tell you, I wasn't feeling very good before I came out here. Feeling a little bit insecure, like I'm an old guy, can't play anymore, all this bullshit that I tell myself in my head. So I talked to these guys and they helped me, as simple as that. They gave me a hug and said, hey, if you're struggling on stage, we got your back. And I tell you, it means the world to me. All the other guys in the band come out. Lars left his drum kit, and the entire band embraced on stage. Bunch of men in their 50s in a metal band hugging. And, uh, and seeing you out there, I, I am not alone. I am not alone, and neither are you. The Kaiser Family Foundation found during the pandemic four in ten adults in the U.S. reported symptoms of anxiety or depression. That's up from 1 in 10 the year before. In a proclamation recognizing May as Mental Health Awareness Month, Joe Biden said mental health is essential to our overall health, and the importance of attending to mental health has become even more pronounced during COVID-19 pandemic, which has not only negatively impacted many people's mental health, but has also created barriers to treatment. Guys, again, fuck the stigma, okay? Fuck the stigma. If you're not getting treatment because you care about how you're going to be perceived, you're making it worse for yourself and those who love you. Fuck the stigma. There's many early, early warning signs of mental illness. Worrying, feeling afraid more than usual, feeling hopeless most of the time, empty, sad. I know these are moods sometimes, right? It's not necessarily clinical depression. Having trouble thinking, concentrating, learning, big mood shifts from lows to just elation, avoiding your friends, avoiding your family. Sleeping or eating a lot more or less than usual for not caring about the activities you used to love Getting high or getting drunk more often than usual and of course thinking about suicide And you know if you have a kid it changes in school performance hyperactive behavior nightmares tantrums Recognizing early signs of a struggle with mental illness can help you or someone you love get treatment sooner because it responds really well to early intervention there's so many online resources if you're not sure if it's time to get help. You know, there's mental health screenings. There's online tests. They compare your experiences to mental health systems. It can give you a better sense of it. Uh, try Mental Health America. They have self-assessment screenings. You can go uh, to Veteran Affairs screening for PTSD. Go to their website. Um, CDC has a short quiz on their website. Center for Disease Control on myths and facts about mental health. And if someone you know or love has signs of this or if you have signs of it, there's individual counseling, there's group therapy. Yes, there's medication, there's peer support groups. It's not just talk therapy, although that might be what you need. There's inpatient care at centers or hospitals, residential programs. Just talk to your doctor first. They may have recommendations for therapists, psychiatrists, other services in the area you live in. And there's so many online therapy options now to fit your schedule. Talk to your insurance provider. See what services are covered under your plan. See what you can get. 
Ask people you love for recommendations for therapists. Go to, go to Psychology Today's website or try Therapy Den. Also, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 800-273-TALK. 800-273-TALK. You can always contact the Crisis Text Hotline by texting HOME to 741-741. Veterans Crisis Hotline, 800-273-8255. National Alliance on Mental Illness. You text NAMI, N-A-M-I, to 741-741. Women are more likely to get help for mental health issues. 90% of people who commit suicide have an underlying mental illness. And it affects your judgment, guys. Depression is twice as likely to happen to people with heart disease compared with the general population. And my brother, Paul, started a great service for people who might not be able to afford therapy or might not have therapy covered under their shitty insurance. It's called the Open Path Psychotherapy Collective. You can go to openpathcollective.org. My brother started this nonprofit 10 years ago. He's a therapist, and it's all about hooking people up with the right therapist for your needs. (laughs) There's lots of reasons to have hope right now, okay? The Justice Department just asked the House Committee (laughs) investigating the January 6th attack for transcripts of the interviews they're having. That's big. I mean, that that appears to be the biggest sign yet that Merrick Garland's actually going to do something about this. So we need you around. We need you around. Remember, depression is a disease. Negativity is a habit. Hannity is the opposite of sanity. And if we really are all in this together, then despair is not an option. Take care of you. We need you. America needs you. Take a break. Turn off the news when you need to. Stop doom scrolling. Get off the internet when you need to. I'm not saying quit it. Just get off it for a while. Do something good for your brain. Work out. Dance. Read fiction. Have sex. Paint. Pick up a new skill. Learn how to play ukulele. Open up different avenues in your mind. Do something good for your soul. Be kind to your mind. And then get back in the game. Because if we are in this together, despondency is privilege. Take care of yourself and then come back to us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to welcome our next guest. Before I bring him on, I do want to play a quick little clip. Uh, This is from earlier today. They asked Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, if he feels any obligation to push back against the racist, dishonest concept of white replacement theory that some candidates and Congress folk are getting increasingly comfortable to espouse. Give a listen to McConnell's response. Have any personal responsibility as a Republican leader to speak out on replacement theory, which is apparently one of the things that motivated the shooter in Buffalo, in which some of your members and candidates have talked about it to some degree. 
Well, certainly the episode, this horrible episode in Buffalo is the result of a completely deranged uh, young man who ought to suffer the severest possible penalty under the law. There you go. Lone wolf, mental illness. That would be Mitch McConnell, the moral center of the GOP Senate. (sighs) I'm not surprised. Um, I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest who's written quite an amazing book. Ira Shapiro served 12 years in senior staff positions in the U.S. Senate, working for a a series of very distinguished senators from Jacob Javits to Gaylord Nelson, uh, from Robert Byrd to Jay Rockefeller. He served in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative during the Clinton administration, first as general counsel and then chief negotiator with Japan and Canada. He's written two previously very critically acclaimed books about our Senate, The Last Great Senate, Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis, and Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself?, and the country. Now, in those previously well-regarded books, he chronicled the institution from its arguable peak in the 70s through its decline in the decades since. He has now made his series a trilogy with a book about how the Senate responded to the challenges posed by the Trump administration. It's called The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Democrats Abandoned America. It is deeply, deeply uh, researched and a book that will inspire you as much as it will infuriate you. What a pleasure to welcome Mr. Ira Shapiro to the show. Hello, sir. John, thank you for an excessively generous introduction. I'm really glad to be with you. Well, no, thank you for writing the definitive book about what Mitch McConnell is, um, and what he's done to this institution. I, you know, I've been, I've been dying to ask you, this book is so exhaustively researched, and it's just, it's just so maddening to see what this amoral creature has done. You worked in the Senate for, for 12 years, and you worked with the Senate when you were in the Clinton White House, and you've written three books about the Senate in one decade. Before I even get into McConnell, what was it that first fascinated you about this body, the U.S. Senate? I've probably spent more time thinking about the Senate than any reasonable person should. But I got hooked on it early. Um, I was looking at the time of the last crisis in our country, Vietnam, and it morphed into Watergate. I was looking for an outlet for public service. And I had an internship in the Senate, and I found it to be both fascinating and rewarding. And I saw great possibility to be in public service. And so I trained and came back to the Senate. And the reason was that the Senate was, it was Hamilton's room where it happened at that time. Mm -hmm. It was the place where the hardest problems got worked out by Democrats and Republicans who would debate vigorously and had their differences but were there to serve, understood they were there not just to serve their states or their parties, but to serve the nation. And so I was inspired by that, and I found that it worked that way for a long time. Fast forward, I left after 1987, we're talking a long time ago, and then troubled by the decline in the Senate, I looped back and wrote the first book in 2012, 10 years ago. And Unfortunately, I've described the downward arc of the Senate. And when I say downward arc, John, um, I see a period of a long, gradual decline and then a deep downward spiral, which coincides with McConnell's arrival as leader. 
When do you think it peaked? Uh, I think the Senate in, peaked in its performance in the 60s and 70s. It became a more conservative Senate after Ronald Reagan's landslide election, but it kept the momentum, it still worked as a Senate. It was right of center, more than left of center. It was kind of on the 40-yard line on one side as opposed to another. But the senators still knew how to be senators, and right. the leaders knew how to be leaders. And by that, I mean they looked for common ground. They worked together. And you, whether it was Byrd and Baker when Byrd was majority leader and it flipped the other way to Howard Baker being majority leader, they still worked the same way. McConnell and to some extent Harry Reid before, but particularly McConnell because he's been there so long, he represents a dramatic break from Senate leaders of the past. This is not somebody who's looking for any common ground. Uh, I regard him I think the record shows him to be an architect of division rather than rather than try to ease, dif overcome differences. He usually exacerbates them and their consequences have been very severe. I would agree. I mean, today's Senate Republicans seem committed solely to obstructing Democrats. That's that's it. And it's the same in the House. I, I call this the Dave Bratt rule. We saw. Um, uh, you know, previously, uh, Dave Bratt, when he challenged Eric, um, what's his name in the house, uh, was just far more right wing, far more racist, far more crazy. And he knocked out, uh, the minority leader. And ever since then, it seems that Republicans are terrified if they cooperate in any way, if they have a meeting with a democratic president, they'll get primary. The, the rule seems to be if they do their jobs, they'll lose their jobs. Uh, you argue in the book, it doesn't matter how bad it got. They simply wouldn't do their jobs. And Mitch McConnell, as you say, almost kept us in the Great Recession rather than work with Barack Obama. I think that's right. And while my book is, as you said, is primarily about the Senate during the Trump presidency um, to give some groundworks for people who unsurprisingly didn't read my first two books, but to give some groundwork. I thought it was important to show that McConnell had been taking the Senate down in a very partisan, obstructionist direction, even in times of crisis like the Great Recession. I can't think of another Senate leader who would not have tried to have come up with some economic stimulus. But McConnell completely turned against that simply because there was a new Democratic president. I think that's shameful behavior, but that's the way it continued. Um, so a lot of people, you know, John the first, a lot of people really focused on McConnell was when he blocked the consideration of Merrick Garland and the yeah. Supreme Court seat. But I argued before that that he was the most destructive Senate leader considerably before that. 
You certainly do. And by the way, I'm very proud to say for a minute there, I forgot Eric Cantor's last name. I think that's a sign <laughs> of healing. That is healing. Um, you didn't you didn't hear me jump in, so I forgot <laughs> it too. Yeah, Eric Cantor was primary. He went and met with Obama every week and said no to everything. And then he was cha- challenged by Dave Bratt, who said, can you believe that Eric Cantor goes to meet with Obama every week? I won't meet with him. And knock the leader out of his job. This is where they are now. Before we go even deeper into McConnell, I do want to ask, what do you, in the interest of fairness, I guess admire might be the wrong word, but you do point out this man is no common political hack for all his amoral doings. No, no. I think it's very important. And I always acknowledge his political skill. I think he is a master strategist and tactician and a very tough, very tough negotiator. He has he has unquestioned political skill. The madness of the Republican Party. I mean, unlike Cantor and Boehner and Ryan and all those people who ended up on the side of the road, McConnell this year will be 16 years as a leader, as long as anyone in Senate history. So he's very skillful. The problem is uh, he uses that skill for his political the party, and he uses it for his own personal power. I tried very hard to give him credit for everything he had done for the nation, but it only took a few pages. <laughs> yes, you say the story of the Senate's rot is first and foremost the story of Mitch McConnell. And you go yeah, and, I into, don't, and I don't. Please. We don't know each other, John, and and certainly your listeners don't. But I've worked with a lot of Republicans over the years. And I've also I also believe I don't like the Twitter culture. I don't even think op eds do it. I if you're going to write a serious criticism of someone, it has to be pretty meticulous and pretty thorough. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to be fair. And I think. Quite honestly, I've about got it right. His record is truly disastrous for the Senate and the country. I I think your work is incredibly fair. And McConnell has long fascinated me as being one of the few public figures of such import who seemingly does not care a bit about how history will regard him. I mean, if anything defines him, it's the the amorality. You, You go into how hard he tried to stop the passage of the Affordable Care Act, despite the fact it would help so many people in his home state of Kentucky, how uh, we'll definitely talk about Merrick Garland after Scalia's death and how he opposed the blue state bailouts during the first wave of of, of COVID-19. But what I found fascinating was long before he put his own career above America's interests, his early years in the Senate didn't really give much indication that he would become this ruthless, this amoral. His role model was John Sherman Cooper, right? Who was rather moderate as Republicans went. Oh, no, he was more. He was he was not just moderate. He was a real uh, statesman senator. He was one of the most respected senators. But here, obviously, McConnell has evolved over time and not for the better. Um, His heroes allegedly were, at one time, John Sherman Cooper, who was a great senator, Mm -hmm. Henry Clay, the great Kentuckian who was known for trying for compromise and for trying to prevent the Civil War. And the leader he 
admires in the Senate, he says, was Mike Mansfield because he treated people so fairly. But McConnell is actually the anti-Mansfield. Mansfield built a Senate based on trust and mutual respect and bipartisanship. And McConnell eviscerated all of those things. It seems like the modern McConnell we now deal with really began with the financial collapse that was really defining the end of George W. Bush's term and the beginning of the Obama presidency. I remember that House Republicans first were against this bipartisan emergency bailout, and then they they went along with it, and the plan was supported by McConnell. But seemingly, as soon as Obama became president, McConnell completely pivoted on this into nonstop opposition, no matter how endangered the U.S. economy was. You put it, for the first time he was the opposition leader. He began immediately to transform a Senate struggling unsuccessfully to rise above the polarization of American politics into a bitterly partisan, paralyzed Senate where no effort would be made to overcome the divisions. Do you think that McConnell saw the popularity of Obama during his inaugural and just thought this was the only way to go? Oh, I absolutely think that. And the best source on that is not my book. The best source on it is McConnell's memoir written in 2016, Mm -hmm. where he explains how he brought together the Republicans right after Obama, right before Obama was inaugurated. Mm-hmm. It was a rainy day and they were all in a bleak mood, but it wasn't because the country was staggering in the Great Recession on the verge of depression. They were in a bad mood because Obama was coming to office with high approval ratings. And, Ob- and McConnell said to them, those won't last. And he sketched out, America's not France yet. We're still right of center and we can take him down, basically. We can take him down. And he he has said in many occasions that if you cooperate, I mean, the party in power has the responsibility to govern. If you cooperate with them, you might make them successful. And that's not acceptable. What do you think his secret is? I mean, you know, you look at these massive tax cuts, uh, all the attempted repeals of Obamacare, the ramming through of justices, um, the impeachments of Trump, which he seemingly supported and then voted against. I mean, the man has no charisma whatsoever. He's not a sympathetic character. He is mocked for his appearance and demeanor all the time. And yet he has an almost supernatural way of keeping his members in line. It's a great question. I think it has to do with the fact that he is skillful politically. Uh, The members are appreciative of him because he got them to the majority at a certain point. And, and he has, he, by the way, used to fight off the crazies who were seeking nominations. You know, so there are a number of the members who are grateful to him that they got to the Senate. They also respect him uh, because of his great knowledge of the donor base and the fact that he raises and his network raises a lot of money. And look, our politics are increasingly tribal. Uh, The tribe sticks together. I spent a lot of time writing articles and sort of talking and trying to convince moderates and more independent Republicans to break with the leader. It's not easy to get them to do it. 
because even when they're going to retire, they sort of they're Republicans and they don't want to be hassled in the restaurants or the airports or the country clubs. Look, there's no defending in my mind the people who ran through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett eight days before Election Day. When I say when I use the word betrayal in the title, I don't use it lightly. I say betrayal because these are the people who had the responsibility and these are the people who deliberately either neglected it, let Trump and McConnell rampage, Trump rampage and McConnell do his thing. They either neglected it or they basically did something they knew was wrong. They knew confirming Barrett was the wrong thing to do. And even the ones that were retiring came forward and did it. My guest is Ira Shapiro, author of the excellent essential new book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. You know, I think when Mitch McConnell's epitaph is written, um, every obituary will probably mention Merrick Garland in the first paragraph. And you really make the connection between McConnell pledging to make Obama a one-term president, obstructing everything. And even though it didn't work, they still managed to take the Senate back in the 2014 midterms which really led directly to McConnell having a lot of confidence that he could completely deny a popular president, even an up or down vote on a duly appointed Supreme Court nominee. I mean, there's no way to overstate how historically significant that moment was. It was extraordinarily significant. And I'm sure that Democrats and I'm sure former President Obama has thought about it you know, long and hard as to whether he did as much as he might have done uh, to highlight the issue. I think that it's very possible. Some people have said that there was a certain amount of confidence that Secretary Clinton would be elected. uh, And and certainly a lot of us thought Clinton would be Trump. Um, But it had great consequences. Look, Obama, McConnell himself As far as I can tell, McConnell didn't think that Trump was going to win. Yeah. But he wanted to keep the option open. Basically, he he liked to make trouble for Obama. And if if the long shot came through, he wanted that vacancy there. And he came up a big winner, came up a big winner. As you well know, sir, the founding fathers gave the U.S. Senate many different jobs, but there was one real core responsibility to provide a a check and balance against presidential authority, especially against a dangerous president who could threaten democracy as we know it. So cut to 230 years later, this reality show landlord who had literally defrauded vets with a scam online university reaches the White House. The Senate should have been the body to serve as America's line of defense. What happened? I mean, well, what happened? Was, was this stated, McConnell a, another Trump? It. Yeah, Please. you've stated my argument well, and I appreciate you actually having read the book so carefully. I think that, you know, what happened was, and I frankly wrote the third book because the second one ended on too partially optimistic a note. In the early going, it seemed to me that the Senate was aware of the dangers that Trump 
presented. They were very acutely aware when he fired Jim Comey, when he took the Russian ambassador into the White House. They were aware of that. They imposed sanctions on Russia 98 to 2 and said and made them sanctions that Trump couldn't waive. They were aware. The Intelligence Committee started investigating. Robert Mueller became the independent special counsel. And Flake and Senators Flake and Corker spoke out very strongly. But over time, they, it dissolved. Flake and Corker left the Senate. The Mueller report, for various reasons we could discuss if we had more time, but it fizzled to some extent. Yeah. And by 2019 and the end of 2019, there was very little dissent from Trump with Trump. And when he was impeached the first time, they all rallied in support of him. They acquitted him without even censoring him for anything. And then we hit the crisis year of 2020. With the country truly in crisis, they completely abandoned America. Yeah. You really give some great detail about, you know, the debacle of Donald Trump and the coronavirus pandemic. I mean barely any pushback from Mitch McConnell as this president was just downplaying or outright lying about the virus and really not trying to pressure this president to take any steps that could have prevented massive deaths of American citizens. Yeah, I I think, you know, McConnell would say, and his defenders would say, he modeled good behavior. He certainly favored masking and social distancing, etc., He certainly distanced himself from the White House, where you could get coronavirus quite easily in Trump's White House. But we know how strong McConnell can be on things he cares about. And he just checked out, basically. He just was not there. He didn't use private persuasion. He didn't use public persuasion. He didn't do much of anything that I could find. Mm -hmm. He only was roused to action after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. That was the only death he cared about. <laughs> you, you begin the book with a quote from uh, former Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona, who, of course, did speak out against Trump to some degree, voted for a lot of his policies, but spoke out against him. And, and he said, the quote you give is, under our Constitution, there are simply not that many people who are in a position to do something about an executive branch in chaos. Too often we observe the unfolding drama along with the rest of the country, passively all but saying somebody should do something without seeming to realize that someone is us. So at the impeachment trial in the Senate, the second one, McConnell gave a ferocious attack on Donald Trump. Ferocious attack on him, but all too predictably voted to acquit him anyway. And Trump just turned around and called him a dour, sullen, unsmiling political hack. I mean, it's just incredible that McConnell saved Trump over and over and over again. But Trump just couldn't help but despise him. What do you make of their relationship? (laughs) Well, I think that. By the end, certainly, I think McConnell genuine expressed genuine anger about Trump's role in the insurrection. I think, you know, I think he spoke honestly. And then he made the calculation, but I can't take him down yet. 
I think he's too strong to take down. Yes. I think McConnell would love for Trump to disappear. I think he was hoping his popularity would wither away once he's out of office. That I think his calculation from his position was probably the right calculation. The difficulty has been, I quote Senator Ben Sass, who voted yes. to convict Trump. Some things should be beyond calculation. If McConnell had voted to convict, uh, a number of others would have joined him and Trump would have been convicted and Trump would have been barred from seeking office again. And that would have been the right outcome. But McConnell couldn't do that. He didn't have the, the courage to do that. You know, you also do criticize other Senate Republicans. I mean, it seems like they were either just completely afraid of Trump or like McConnell were just riding the wave to their own benefit. Yeah, I mean, look, one of my Bill Crystal, who's a leading never Trumper at this point, said to me once that uh, the capacity for rationalization is almost endless or infinite. Um, it takes somebody like Rob Portman of Ohio, really good public servant. Uh, I worked with him when he was trade representative. I knew him. Um, did nothing for four years to stand up to Trump when his stature would have counted for something. Now, why was that? Was that cowardice? Not necessarily. It's, it's sort of rationalization. Well, if I get along with him, I can do more for Ohio. Maybe I can moderate it. If I mm. wasn't the senator, maybe somebody would be worse. Endless calculations of that right. sort. And the result being you missed taking action in the greatest uh, presidential attack on our democracy in history. You know, how do you I mean, I don't know how he lives with himself, frankly. I, I, I don't either. I mean, maybe Bill Barr is the only other public figure I can think of less concerned with his place in history. Um, you know, I do have to ask you about uh, the last year. You go into great detail in the first year of Joe Biden's presidency with McConnell as minority leader. Um, for someone who is a big fan of the Senate, you're not a big fan of all the parliamentary rules. And I'm wondering how your view on the filibuster, sir, has evolved over the years. Well, I'm not a fan of the rules. And I spoke out against, wrote about the rules 10 years ago. I've never really understood why Rand Paul or one other senator, any other senator, can block things indefinitely. I'd give him a chance to speak for an hour and then move on if the leaders had agreed on something. Right. On the central question of the filibuster, I, I I've used to know Robert Byrd, the ultimate I'm showing my age, I think, but I used to know Robert Byrd. Byrd started out as a defender and user of the filibuster, but he lived in fear of the paralyzed Senate. And when he saw signs that it was going to be paralyzed, he took the lead and worked with Howard Baker, and they changed the post-cloture filibuster and something. I believe in extended debate, but I don't believe in unlimited debate. And mm -hmm. I think that Leaders in the Senate who really cared about the Senate would come together and say, the place isn't working. We can't, we can't change the, 
the rules overnight, but let's say two will agree to something and two years from now, we don't know who'll be in the majority, who'll be in the minority, but we'll have rules that'll be fair to both and to the individual senators. These rules haven't been looked at since 1979. That's, That's right. quite remarkable. So, you know, you take an institution that's so important and then you let it run into, you run it into the ground. And I, I came up with something, John, and this was after I wrote the book. I was trying to figure out there was something missing in my analysis. And I realized David Marinus wrote a great biography once of uh, Vince Lombardi, the coach mm-hmm. of the Green Bay Packers. And he entitled it When Pride Still Mattered. The senators had no pride in the Senate. They liked being called senator, but they didn't they had no pride in the institution. They talk about it being broken or paralyzed all the time. Mm. And they don't be, they didn't behave like it was valuable. They didn't behave like they had an important role to play and a responsibility. No so, pride. So I have to ask you in, in closing, and I thank you so much for joining us. The book is so fascinating. I mean, especially after watching the conduct of this party during the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, which I oh. just don't see how that won them any new fans. I don't see how that helped the party one bit. How do you see the final act of Mitch McConnell's career playing out? Well, <laughs> I'm glad you brought up uh, Judge Jackson. Because I think it was a classic example of McConnell as an architect of division. It would have been very easy to support Judge Jackson, who was exceptionally qualified. Or he could have even said, look, she's too liberal for me, but she's very qualified. And it's wonderful to have an African-American woman who is of this qualifications whether he voted for her or not. But he didn't do that. He accused her of being the candidate of the radical left. He just, and he walked out at the end, you know, just sort of in in disgust. And he does that all the time. Now, what's he trying to do? Well, I think he might be calculating that since the, the, uh, since the, Federalist Society and others already have six judges as justices. Maybe they won't be motivated enough to come out and vote. So he's got to give them even more, always mm. give them more to in motivate them. He's worried that the Democrats will be more motivated than the Republicans. Right. I don't know. Maybe that's the calculation. The truth is McConnell for many years, there's no evidence that he was a racist uh, he had a civil rights record. Um, but if you take positions that are the ones that the Republican Party has been taking and you don't ever stand up for civil rights or voting rights uh, right. or the rights of anyone else, that's that's a bad you know, that it doesn't matter what your record was in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. 
And a photo of you smiling in front of a Confederate flag from the 90s doesn't help all that much either. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Ira Shapiro. The essential new book is The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. Robert Reich calls it a gripping narrative and a must-read. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Please come back anytime. It would be a pleasure to talk more. I'd love to do it, John, but also really thank you for having me and for for read, reading it so closely. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it is a gripping read, Secretary Reich A. Lyon, and I'm really honored to have you. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great evening. We will be right back with your calls. This is Progress. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. But let's go to the phones right now. Teresa in North Carolina, thank you so much for your patience on hold. Okay. Well, um, it's interesting that you were talking tonight about the mental health thing. I've been trying to get in. I yeah. haven't been able to get a hold of you. But, but anyway, my daughter committed suicide just a week before Naomi Judd. I'm so sorry. And, um, yeah, and you know, she was just, she was educated, brilliant. I mean, she could have been a movie star, just gorgeous thing. But about two years ago, she just, something snapped, just something snapped in her brain. And she was, she went to hospitals. We got her on medication. I had never been exposed to anything like that. It just never, never entered my life until her. And uh, so about two and a half years ago, she said, you know, mom, I don't want to be on this planet. I don't want to be here. I really don't. And I said, well, maybe you'll change your mind. She said, nope, I'm done. I've had a wonderful life. I've traveled. Uh, I have really had a charm life, but I'm done. You know, so don't get me any more uh, hospitals, medications, because one way or another, I'm getting out of here. So about a week and a half ago, I said, well, I'm going to Gatlinburg, and Angie, I think you can probably try to stay by yourself for three days. And I came back. And she had hung herself in my condo. And, you know, I've had to really go through the process of saying that she was very clear and that that is really what she wanted to do. And I don't know, you know, I think sometimes, you know, we don't choose to be born or how we commit the world, but maybe there's a point to where you can choose how you want to leave it. And um, so it has really, I've had a great, much more empathy and compassion now. You know, for mental illness. Yeah. But that two years was quite a journey. But I do want to tell you that every night she would say, Mom, it's time for John Fuglesang. You better get him on. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, every night she'd say that. I mean, she'd be so depressed. But she'd say, Oh, Mom, now it's time for John. 
Now, oh, now, God. Every night, it's 9 o'clock. Now you get him on. And I said, oh, okay, okay, Andrew, I am. And tell me your daughter, tell me, Teresa, please tell me your daughter's mm-hmm. name. Tell me your daughter's name. Angie. Angie. Mm-hmm. Angie. Well, she stayed in Ruby almost all the time, except to come out and eat. But I just thought it was so cute how I just want to tell you that she knew I enjoyed your show. And it'd be getting late, you know, and I'd, she said, now, it's almost 9 o'clock. You better get some. You better get some. Uh, <laughs> Every night she did that. That, that. Thought, oh, I have got I have to say, in some circles, that counts as elder abuse. i got to be honest with you. Making a parent listen to my show could be elder <laughs> abuse for some. Ever, um, never, ever uh, let me not get in it on time. And and then she'd listen to you a little bit, and she'd say, oh, I can see why you like him. He's so progressive, because mm. I really kind of was an old hippie and, you know, <laughs> bought into all that stuff of the 60s. And, and she should have been a hippie. She really was more of a 60s person than a than her generation. She was 55 because she was born 66. Mm, okay. But, you know, that two years was really, uh, I mean, I'll never forget it because she just changed overnight. Something happened yeah. in her brain. She had all kinds of good care, but something happened and she was never the same. And I just have to respect, I guess, the mystery of it all and the mystery of the brain because sort of the brain's, I think, one of the last frontiers, you know. And there's things they can, it's not like looking at a broken arm or a cancer that you can test. The brain is very complex. It sounds like you've done a lot of work on this. It sounds like, Teresa, you've you've done a lot of work Mm -hmm. on this. I I have to ask before I ask anything else, um, are you okay? Are you around good people? Do you have a support system right now? Because this is very, very new. And I know you're, you're probably still in shock from such a terrible, terrible, inconceivable loss. How are you doing? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, pretty good. And, you know, we had her, I, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and we had her memorial last Sunday. And mm. she touched so many lives. People came from California, she knew, from New York. Wow. Uh, she traveled a lot from all places she had. I bet there were 200 people. And I learned a lot about Angie. She wasn't with me a lot, you know, through the years. So when I heard their stories about her and how she impacted all their lives, I learned a lot about her I didn't even know. So that really, uh, and I, when I got up, I read the thing from Cahill Gibran about our children, you know, we house yes. their bodies, but never their souls yes. and all that. So, uh, but grief is, it's a process, you know, and um, I know, and I have to respect that that's what Angie wanted. And she won and she suffered so much. She lost all sense of joy and she was yeah. so vibrant. And I have to respect that that is what she wants. And she said, if I could take that purple drink they give you in Switzerland, I'd go right in my bedroom and take it right now. Are you are you around, folks? Do you do? You, but do you do you, Teresa, have people with you? Do you have people that you can talk to? Do you are you in oh, therapy? Yeah. Do you have any? Do you have a support system right now? Because I don't want you living yeah, well, alone with your thoughts about this right now. I want you to be around people who are there for you. Yeah, well, you know, I do. I have a wonderful, uh, wonderful family, and her younger sister and I. We just were such advocates for Ange. But yeah. it's just such a mystery how it how is. a person can just switched just like something switched off her light went out she was so bright and vibrant but her light and her essence just left and i i, kept I lost saying, i'm not losing the whole band i, I lost my hand. best friend uh, i lost my best friend 11 years ago and she told mm-hmm. me she was gonna go she told me she was done and and i just hoped against hope that this was just her way of yep. grieving this was her way of crying out for help and attention 
I knew she was troubled. Mm-hmm. I knew she'd had a lot of problems. She was a beautiful artist and someone that I love very much and that my wife loved very much and that I was very close to for several years. And, and when I finally got the call, I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised because she had told me that she was yeah. just mm-hmm. done. Her time was done. And I kept thinking, well, something's going to come along and you're going to change and you're going to realize this and this time will pass and you'll, you'll be a different person than you are now. But she knew where she was going. And I, I don't know as much as I hate her choice. I also knew that I didn't have a right to condemn her choice. I do feel like your daughter Mm -hmm. loves you immensely and still does. It sounds like she had so much love and compassion for you and so much trust for you that she could speak about such things so openly to you. You know, and she loved the world. Amy or Angie carried a lot of the burdens of, Oh, unfairness and injustice. She was a real advocate for all that stuff. And, um, so when I saw the lives that she touched last week, you know, at her memorial, I thought, well, you know what? Maybe that was her purpose in life, but just to touch and have those memories. And people shared wonderful experiences with her. So I'm thinking, well, maybe that was just her purpose, you know. But I don't know. It was hard to just, it's just hard to say, well, okay, Angie. She said to me, can't you, can't you give me a hug this life? And I said, look, Angie, I have brought you into this world. I'm not going to help you get out of it. I'm not yeah, doing it. I know. And, uh, but I said, no, Angela, I can't do that. But, um, you know, at least she was here alone and my condo was quiet. And it was safe rather than, you know, go out in a car or whatever, do something crazy and hurt other people. So I was grateful that she had a private and quiet place to do that. And um, But I was going to call you right after it happened. I couldn't get in. But tonight you were on the mental health thing. I thought, oh, i got to call him tonight. Wow. It just happened it just happened to me. But she was a marvelous person. She was so gifted. She sounds amazing. So and she sounds ways. like she truly, truly loved you. And, and, and by the way, I, I, I use present tense. I think I, I say she still loves you. And it sounds like she appreciates yeah. you. And it sounds like she respects yeah. you enough that I know it wasn't easy for her. And I know that she didn't want to hurt you yeah. and she didn't want to let you down. It's very, very clear from hearing this. No. I just have to, no, my, my primary concern right now is you, Teresa. Yeah. I know that Angie's okay, but my concern is that you're around people who are going to be there for you and that you have people to talk to because your feelings are going to go through many, many twists and turns and, and your relationship with Angie is going to continue to, to change and evolve and go in many different directions. Yeah. I think your relationship will still be in the present tense. Well, I hope so. And grief, you know, grief is such a bitch because... A lot of it you do have to do alone. You can share with others, but some yeah. grief, I think, you have to find a way. It's kind of a lonely journey. I agree. In some I agree. Uh, and it never but, goes away. It never goes away. No. But but grief is very pure. No. You know, there's the helplessness. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mm-hmm. my mom my mom died in Asheville. I lost my mom in your town. And there's the helplessness oh of wanting to be there for the person you love so much, and feeling like mm-hmm. everything you try to do is not going to work. Everything you try to give is never going to save this person. And I do think Mm -hmm. that it's never a relief when they're gone, but the helplessness, the dread does go away. You can love the person you've Mm -hmm. lost purely. And the grief Mm -hmm. is a way to do that without having to have all the worry and all the fear and all the terror of something happening. Once the worst has happened, 
it's yeah. happened and you have to yeah. you, i think you owe it to your daughter to have a, a really happy life now well thank you john i appreciate it i really do but i just wanted you to know you were a part of you know she would perk up a little bit most times she just laid in your it's so cute every night she's like, well this, this show no, this, this show is actually the the cdc says this show has caused depression in millions of people so i'm very sensitive <laughs> to that but I got to tell you something, Please. Teresa. I, I'm I'm so honored to have you as a listener to this show. I'm so honored that someone of your grace and love and wisdom and kindness would would uh, would would listen to us, Mooks. And I I hope that you will keep in touch with us in the weeks to come and let us know how your journey is going, okay. and how your healing okay. is going. And 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 thank you for loving your daughter so much. Okay. Thank you again, John. Thank and you. I love Thea, and I love what's her uh, the y'all black. I love her. I love yeah, her. I love I love, I love Thea and the the other guy, uh, whatever his name is too. He means he means oh, well. You know. You're all just great, but you were, <laughs> uh, but the last two years you were a part of it. She had listened. You know, she didn't come out of room, but she'd listen. And uh, but she knew it was nine o'clock. I just had to tell you that. Right she, on. I'd think, oh, she won't remember, but she'd come out. It's time. It's time for John. <laughs> well, okay, then, well, thank you so much for listening, John. Then Angie has touched my life, and I give her my thanks and gratitude as I give them to you. I'm glad you called. Thank you so much. 